skulle vilja dela alla livets dagar med dig. Min ros, min lilja, jag skulle vilja dela alla livets dagar med dig. Hello, I'm Colin Williams. And I'm Ian Rowlands. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. Now, Ian, we've wanted to record um, an episode about wild food and foraging for a while. And uh, either the timing hasn't been right or the seasons haven't been right. And uh, and so you have managed to find someone for us to talk to about wild food and foraging. Tell us a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm a, I'm very passionate about wild food and foraging. I'm not as knowledgeable as I'd like to be. I'm right in the middle of, uh, this is the season where we've been making uh, a bit of dandelion jelly. We're making some nettle soup. Um, I'm very uh, keen on mushrooms. Um, but I've got very fond memories of living in northern Scotland, where the northern plants are such a, there are fewer plants and they have more meaning. And I thought, how interesting it would be to speak to somebody from even further north. And uh, so I stumbled across the wonderful Eva Gunnera, who is uh, a Swede from Stockholm, who uh, moved to the far north of Sweden in Jokmok uh, and met a Sami man and lives amongst the Sami culture. So I thought it'd be fascinating to, to speak to her. <laughs> My name is Eva Gunnare and uh, I live in Jokmok, which is a very, very small, uh, you, you, you can't call it a city, it's a small society with about two and a half thousand people living it uh, and it's in the heart of Swedish Lapland, just above the Arctic Circle. So uh, we have almost midnight sun time here right now. It never gets dark anyway. Um, and uh, it's sort of in the middle of the forest, but we have a great river, Lula River, beside us. And if we go west, if I go west, I come to the mountain area. It's far from where I was born because I was born in Stockholm. So it's far away both city-wise and uh, also in kilometers it's about uh, 1000 kilometers from from Stockholm so we're quite far north so tell us Ava it's very kind of you to join us um, what led you to move to Jokmok it, it's a, it's a big move for somebody had you been in the far north of Sweden before you moved there uh, no not really because I've always had a peculiar feeling that I wanted to go to the mountains. I've had a very a deep uh, long for the mountain area. And uh, maybe it had to do when I was 11, 12 years old, I, I stayed with a family in, in Denver, Colorado. And maybe, you know, being there wanted me to even go to the Swedish mountains. But uh, as family, we used to go skiing in the small mountains nearby. Uh, but I wanted to go north. I've sort of driven to go there. So um, after studies in uh, tourism science, you can say, uh, I got my one of my first summer jobs up in the mountain area uh, by Kungsleden. And uh, the small, small town with 15 inhabitants uh, is called Kvikjok. And it's just west of Jokmok. And I was 
I just fell in love. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's a very small village where the road ends, and you have the high mountains beside, and the it's all the 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 nature there is really wild. You you get uh, you you get a feeling that here, as a man or a human, you cannot. Uh, you have to be side by side by nature because it's it was so powerful rivers and so big mountains and so deep forest there, and the people I just felt like these people I want to hang out with. They were uh, easygoing, um, joyous, and nothing was about where I came from or what I do. It was all about having a good time together. So uh, I met a lot of Sami people there, but also village people. And uh, yeah, it it was really somewhere where I felt like, okay, this is a place where I as a person, I think I belong here. It was very strong. <laughs> so that's a wonderful thing yeah. to, to say, a sense of belonging. Now, I wanted to ask you, and we could clearly talk a lot about this, that you are, you're in an area that's the heart of Sami mm-hmm. culture. And for those listening in the podcast, Sami culture spreads across northern Norway, northern Sweden, Finland, Russia, yeah. into Russia mm-hmm. even. Yes, yeah. And uh, and it's a big part of the culture where you live? Uh, Jokmok is, is quite, uh, it has a lot of Sami inhabitants and I can, you can almost say it's like a, um, the, the center of Sami um, in Sweden, even if probably most of the Sami people live in Stockholm, if you count genes and things like that, DNA. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, it's quite visible in Jokmok and you cannot say that about the Sami culture in in other parts of Sweden it's uh, it, Sweden has a com- complicated um, relationship with the Sami and the history of it uh, we are very eager to help other indigenous peoples and in school we learn a lot about the Indians and so on the Native Americans but uh, very very little about our own indigenous culture so uh, there's a lot to explore in your journey to the north and, and the way that you uh, discovered more of a relationship with mm-hmm. plants and other edible things. But was that something that when you arrived in Yokmok, you found it was strong in Sami mm-hmm. culture, that relationship with food and the land? Well, it was, I, I think, in, 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 in the small village of Kvikjak, where I first uh, stayed the first eight years, um, I sort of got a feeling that there is a, a difference between the Sami and the Swedish uh, locals, and uh, for me, I have, I have sort of made a connection that for the Sami people, especially the ones working with the reindeer, um, they are part of a, a, a geographic area where they can use the land, but they cannot own it, and for that. Uh, if you work in a big area, you need help. You need to help each other. Um, but if you are sort of a local and you have land and you have your own uh, forest or ground, you want to protect it. So you don't want any help from anybody else. You just want you know people to clear off. So I, I felt quite strongly that uh, I, it was easy to help and easy to uh, join the Sami uh, as a 
foreigner as I was, <laughs> Swedish foreigner. Uh, but the locals had another feeling to, to it. They were more... And I think that's also part of what you can see today. I mean, you don't want anybody, a stranger coming in. You know, you want to close the borders. But if you if you want to work with an area together, you need people who, who are... Who, who know about the area and who are interested in it. So um, I met my first husband, who is a Sami ranger herder. So that I did that after seven years. And uh, we are still friends, but we are not married. And he's 23 years older. So he, he has a very different background. I mean, he was really a nomadic uh, family when he grew up. And uh, he has been sort of grown up with the true Sami old traditions and he was quite good at plants and uh, both for a little bit medical but also uh, we picked a lot of sorrel which is uh, one of the big uh, Sami plants like a vitamin c but also as a spice and 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 a dessert they make like a porridge from the leaves and eat it with some uh, cream and sugar maybe now (laughs) or honey um and yeah he he sort of uh, very gently showed me the nature and for me um i i was i mean every day with him was an an adventure and it's not always that he told me about everything because i think the sami um tradition and culture is to to show not always to talk but see what I do and, you know, try to make up what it's done. So um, little by little, you know, I, I could make the puzzle <laughs> and so on. So uh, it was uh, 17 years of being in the Sami community and uh, being the mother of a Sami son. And I mean, in the summers we were up in, in Pajilanta, which is a national park where there's about... 80 kilometers to the nearest road so you have to walk there for several days or we usually took a helicopter to go there and uh, that's the summer area for the reindeer and also for them and um, living there very close to uh, I mean the first years we lived in one of these guachti which is like a turf hut with a just um, earth floor and a central fireplace in the middle and we slept on the reindeer skins and uh, very very you know you took the water from the from the lake to to drink and to fish and to uh, cook and to uh, do everything so and you know you fished every morning and yeah just a wonderful summer life very different to Stockholm (laughs) Why do you, why do you think that wild food and taste and and food in general in, in Sami culture why do you think that that was what you gravitated towards mm-hmm. why why was it that that fired your imagination what was it about well that? first of all when I was working in the mountain lodge in Kvikjok we had a lot of botanists there and we had some guides uh, and one special guide he was very good at bringing in edible plants so it was not only 
the the Sami who sort of taught me that. So uh, we made ice cream flavored with Alpine Bistert, which is almost like a well, it it's a flavor almost like hazelnut, you know, things like that. And and uh, we had a good time playing in the kitchen there. Um, and then when I when I had my married life when in the Sami community, I mean the nomadic life. It sounds very romantic, and of course now it's it's not as nomadic as it used to be. I mean, everybody has snowmobiles in the winter and take the helicopter and has small houses and not these old traditional turf huts. Um, I mean, they need to work to get an income like anybody else. But you could sense that if you spend a lot of time in nature you have another relationship with it and you know of course so so much more about it um so there were a couple of plants which was quite sort of i got a new relationship with uh, from the sami and that was the angelica of course which is the most used plant uh, but a lot of these plant has also been forgotten so I think for me, uh, it was being, especially in the summertime up in the mountains, uh, and there's no TV, no radio, you know, no telephone, because you, you're totally isolated there. Uh, and with the sun sh- shining night and day, you get very interested in what is around you. And I think when you come back to society and you have all these bus and no, newspaper, <laughs> uh, magazines, uh, telephone, everything, you you get disconnected from nature. So spending many times very close to nature and not having the buzz of everything else, uh, it sort of opens your eyes. And uh, there are small, small flowers and, you know, all the tiny flowers, ah, oh, they're so beautiful and in the first years, you didn't even notice them because you didn't know them. But then when you more, the more time you spend, the more you see and the more amazed you get. So you mentioned sorrel, which we have in yeah. the UK too. It's the same species, I think. And, and there are several, several sorrels. Um, and I wonder what were the first things you discovered on the course when the first foods and the first stories, what, what are the ones that you you were first trying and eating and that you remember the most? Hmm. Well, we did, um, we did something quite exciting and that was uh, uh, taste the first buds from the rowan tree. And the first buds from the rowan tree, and uh, they're just ready here now in the north in Sweden. Uh, when they look like small, I do like this, um, small claws from the... Uh, birds and they're a little bit gray in color they taste like marzipan they have a very i I usually say they taste green marzipan because first you get the flavor of green and then wow comes the flavor of uh, bitter almond you you can say and uh, it's not something that people traditionally have been collecting but it has been like a small treat uh, for some people not not all families but for some and then also, of course, the birch tree. And uh, I have a little relationship with the birch tree because I, I made 
when I was in my teenage years, I, I studied the tourism on high school, you can say, in Östersund, which is in the middle of Sweden, but for Swedish people, it's in the north. And we had a very long and very, 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 very cold winter. And for me, it was sort of my first winter in the north. And uh, after that, the first birch leaves uh, opened. And I remember I took those and I, I put them on my hands like a perfume. <laughs> I rubbed them on me because that smell of the first birch leaves was just so, so gorgeous. So... Um, from the Sami, I, I learned that uh, you can always go and pick them and eat them like a salad, but also to spice them with fish and uh, use them to freshen food. I mean, it's sort of a way to almost preserve a, a little bit longer the freshness of, of fish, especially. And so many of these things must really be specific on the season, mm. the, the time when you eat them. In the, in the relatively short mm. season. When, what are the first things that appear? Is it things like rowan? Yeah, and, rowan uh, and the birch. Um, I've, I've, talked a, I've talked a lot with people about the roast bay willow herb because it's all edible, uh, but it hasn't any tradition of being used as a food. An anthropologist, yeah. And there was one here living just a neighbor with me here in Jokmok uh, who had been spending 30 years discovering the Arctic indigenous people and she said uh, because she had made some books about traditional arctic food also and she said it's special with the rose bay willow herb because it's common almost everywhere in the north in the arctic and almost no one has been using it as as a food and her thoughts about that it was that it was too common uh it was you know everyone was blind <laughs> Uh, I mean, in Sweden, we call it mjölkurt, which means milk herb, because we used to give it to cattle, to cows and goats and things like that, and they would give bet, bet, better milk. But for me, that's one of the best things to start. I mean, they're really crispy like an asparagus when they come like shoots, and uh, you can eat them raw or fry them, and then make the tea from the leaves or eat the buds uh, are really tasty also and, and then make a wonderful cordial from the flowers for example salmi and swedish are totally different and um, like the rose bay widow herbs in in swedish it has 10 15 20 different dialect names um we call them almöcken eller almöcke around here or rallaros, the rose from the railway workers because they usually grow alongside. So I, I like to call them rallaros. Um, so a lot of these common plants have different names. Um, some plants like the angelica uh, in, in, uh, in, in some language, it has many different names for the different parts uh, for for example the first year uh, there's no flower there's just leaves and stems uh, and then in Sami it's called fadno and then the year afterwards or it depends on how cold it is because it likes to grow cold in the mountains uh, so it can take seven years before it has enough power in the root to to blossom and then it's called bosco 
And uh, there's even a, a verb that is called boskit, which means go out and pick the angelica. So, I mean, that suggests in the language that it's a very old plant and it's an old tradition that you even have put a special word, verb for it. And, and the root is called urtas, and the flower is called the, the boskovaivie, which means the flower head, you can say. So, um, yeah, there are sort of plants that have been um, important. They have sometimes very different names because you need to know, like, like for example, the reindeer. I mean, you have 10,000 names for the uh, to describe reindeer depending on what kind of horn they have or what kind of color they have. So uh, things that are important have usually different names. Exploration. It it was wonderful, Ava, to hear you talking that when you, again, when you were starting your journey, and one of the things you've said is that you're still on a journey, that you're still learning all the time about your landscape and about the plants. It was wonderful to hear you talk about how you weren't just interested in the biology or the names. You wanted to understand the history, the stories, um, some of the... Um, maybe some of the religious or mythological significance of, mm. of these plants. Do you have a, was there, was there a story, one of those kind of uh, stories of mythology or, or stories around some of these plants that, that, that you first fell in love with or that you still love? Can you tell us one of those stories? Uh, oh, yes. Um, well, one that comes to mind, for example, is the story about the pine. Um, the pine is very common here. <laughs> you see it everywhere. And uh, yeah, it's a tall tree. You know, you don't think about it as much. And then I started to hear that some of the older, um, usually women, they said that, oh, you should, you should try to taste the sprouts. It's not the spruce sprouts. It's the pine sprout that looks like small fingers. And I said, well, you can't eat those. Well, they're, oh, they're so tasty. You have to peel off the... The, the brown and it's crispy and green inside. So they sort of, it was sort of a way of them showing a traditional candy almost. Um, but then I got to know more about the inner bark. And that was some, that was sort of a um, very traditional way of using, um, in all Arctic people have been using inner bark from different trees because you can find lots of nourishment. And from my Swedish background in school, everybody is taught that bark bread you can do, but you only do it before you're dead. I mean, when you're starving so much and you're so poor that you don't have any other food. And the more I have learned about the Sami traditional way of, uh, of using the, the pine, uh, bark the inner bark is that well one family could could use about 50 kilo per year and they don't weigh anything so it's a lot so it's really been a base food and uh, what we have sort of come to con conclusion is that the difference of being a survival food and being a base food is knowledge because the Sami people they harvested I mean we have uh, in this dialect in the Sami, we have the name uh, June, which is Bietsemano, which means pine month, because that's when you harvested 
the the pine bark, and uh, and you can see in old forests, you know, with the pines that are three, four, five hundred years old, you can see the traces in the in the bark where the outer bark has tried to sort of heal. Uh, there there are traces after this harvesting. Because they never took the whole tree, of course. They only took half of it so it would still grow. Uh, and then they could come back 20 years later and harvest from, from the same tree. So, and they always harvested in May and June when the pine is uh, drinking the sap. And then they drink all the minerals and all the nourishment from the ground. But the farmers, they have heard about the pine bark, but they didn't know when to collect them. So they took it maybe in the winter time or in the early spring, and uh, then it's just something to f- to fill your belly a little bit with. But when it's, I mean, now I think scientists say that it's uh, better than today's wheat and rye and all these things we make bread of. So uh, we have sort of a gold mine out there in the forest that we don't take care of, and I, and that knowledge, when to take it, when it's so good for you, is is totally forgotten. That's not something we learn. And now when we are starting to learn, okay, the Sami, they knew what they were doing, but that knowledge has not been passed through and passed over. So sometimes I think, I wonder how much of that knowledge is, has been lost because it hasn't been a written word. And because the scientists that came up early and they wanted to learn, they were not interested in things like that. They were interested in bear, bear hunting and uh, religious uh, rituals and things like that. So the seasons, you mentioned the times to eat things, which is so important. I, I, I think I heard you describe that you there are eight seasons, mm-hmm. eight seasons in where you live. Yeah. So, um, so is that true? How can that be true? Is it very small changes through the through the no, seasons? No, they're big changes because we have a difference in in temperature from 45 minus until 30, 35 plus. And then we have from light all day and night until dark almost, well, all night and almost all day. So that makes, uh, I mean... The winter time, we really have three different winter times. We have the autumn winter where everything freezes, um, where, of course, uh, I mean, the first snow starts to come, but it's it's quite, it, it's not filled with, a, I mean, the snow doesn't come at all, every, everything at the same time. So it's sort of a time where, where the nature goes to sleep, you can say. It goes to rest. And it's quite dark that because the snow hasn't covered everything to light it up. Uh, and then you have the midwinter where it's quite dark. It's not so many daylight hours, but the snow makes everything glow. And uh, the thick snow cover is also very good protection. And it's very, it's very silence out- outdoors because the snow also takes away all the noises. So... Um, that's sort of a very, it, it, it's almost, un, it looks almost unrealistic when you go out in the midwinter time because the light is so special. You have a couple of hours of dawn and dusk colors and it's just magical. And then we have the spring winter, which goes on from 
half February, March, April. It's a quite long period where the sun is really going up and, and we have a lot of snow. We still have snow here. And uh, so that's sort of a long time where the snow is melting, but it's getting so bright. So all the snow together with the bright sun is a total different feeling than the other two winters. And uh, so so we have, I mean, the time to forage is quite <laughs> small. It's really from the very, well, if you're lucky from end of, uh, end of April, otherwise beginning of May um, where I live and until, yeah, September, you could say. So I was dying to talk about the berry season mm. when, when you harvest the berries. Now, when I lived in Scotland and I've been in Inari in northern Finland and the berries are such an important yeah. thing. So when, when, when do your first berry harvest begin? When do you start? Uh, well, in July, uh, we, have the mm -hmm. first, we have the cloudberries. And the cloudberries is the gold, a very special berry for, for our region. And it's filled with vitamin C. And it's not something traditionally that you have been foraging and preserving because they're quite hard to preserve if you don't have a lot of sugar or a freezer or something like that. But so it has been uh, like, it has been quite festive feeling like, oh, now we have cloudberries. And sometimes you don't get any cloudberries because if there's a heavy rain when the flowers have been opened, they dis destroy all the flowers and there won't be any, uh, there won't be any berries. So some years you can't find almost any, which makes it quite expensive. Um, and it's quite tough to harvest them. They grow in the mountains, but also in the uh, wetlands. I don't the marshlands or yeah. Uh, and usually in July there's quite a lot of mosquitoes, and it can be quite warm. So you need to sort of have your big rubber boots on and a lot of clothes against all the mosquitoes and you sweat and you find one berry here and one berry there. <laughs> and but still you have sort of gold in your eyes because they're so good and you see that you see this orange yellow uh, shine some meters over there so sometimes you just forget where you are you look up and you don't know where is the road and where is my car or where is my house so um, it's special and then we have the we call it åkerbär and i'm not sure i think it's called arctic uh, Arctic bramble. Uh, it's very specific for the north, and it's like a very, very small, deep red uh, raspberry. Uh, but it's not black. It's not like a blackberry or something like that, or or, or a bramble. But and it has the most wonderful taste, and that's also in July, end of July, you can say, or beginning of August, and. Uh, here in Jokmok, there's a lot of flowers, but usually there's not enough heat to make them become berries. But now we've had some quite hot summers, so they're coming here too. And each berry, you need to have a little scissors or a twe tweezer to, to take away the, the, the stem. Uh, if, if you want to make like a marmalade or something of it. So, uh, but the, the smell you get on the hands, I mean, 
it it can sit for days because it's such such a powerful taste of flavor and it's really oh, I think in Sweden we say that's the very best berry of all and it only grows in the north mm. and then we have of course the blueberries they come in in August or it's not blueberries it's bilberries yes because blueberries they are in North America. So bilberries, and I've, I've heard someone say that Sweden is covered with about 17% of uh, bilberries. And it it could be, but I think the modern forestry is making a lot of plants. I mean, now they harvest all the, they don't just cut a tree down. So I think it's less than that, but we have them a lot. Uh, and then it's time for the, uh, the bog bilberries in the end of August. And the bog bilberry is it's quite similar look to the bilberry, but it's not really round. It's a little bit more oval. And uh, it has a very interesting... I, I'm very interested in this berry because it has quite a special... Yeah, a lot of people in, in our region think that it's poisonous, but it's not. Uh, but it doesn't have a really good taste when it's, uh, when it's fresh. But I usually dry them and they become chewy like raisin and with a very great, uh, really good taste. So I'm trying to, to, I'm trying to find out why this very um, reputation about being um, dangerous or poisonous when, when it's not. And I have very different answer to that. I think I will take that another time. But it's interesting when you have something which is quite common and people don't know, even the scientists don't know. So uh, there are a lot of things in our surroundings that still is a mystery, which is fascinating. And you you do something that you call um, taste performances. Yes. <laughs> so tell us about that. Well, I discovered when I went to this food school that uh, my thing is not to stand as a chef in a restaurant and just give people food. My, I, I love to talk too much. <laughs> so uh, when I had gone this education, I was so filled with energy. I mean, I was, I was just buzzing and wanting to uh, start doing something with all this knowledge and all my discovery so I sort of put together something that uh, what I'm good at and what I like to do and uh, when you're over 40 you have the power of not just looking at what what is available what jobs can I take but I had sort of the possibility to to say what do I want to do instead so it's sort of the performance or the taste show is uh, where I have like a bigger group. Usually it can be um, it can be visitor group, but it can also be a company group and a conference uh, or an organization and things like that. And I'm usually standing on a stage and I have my pictures because I love to f- take photos and it doesn't. I mean, I'm, I, usually I take them with my telephone, but it's just to be out in the right moment and to show all these different seasons for perhaps all the, all the, the different uh, types of surroundings we have. And then I want to sort of bring a flavor to each season that I spread around in the room. And I also uh, talk about both 
the plants or the berries, but also talk about the seasons or the the knowledge about living in 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 the north. And then I usually sing also. So tell us about that because that was that was be- beautiful voice that you have. And and were these songs the songs that I've heard you sing? Are they Sami yoiks? Is it songs of your own composition? Tell us about. Yeah, Missouri. I I think you know I'm a typical choir singer, uh, and uh, I don't really know why I started to sing on this, but I think singing is a way of giving another dimension or another sense. And since I wanted to give as many sense impressions to people as possible I sort of gave took some of the songs and also because they mean a lot for me too and um, well I have uh, I have sort of one leg which um, has a null has a passion for Swedish folk music so some of the songs are Swedish old songs and from from my area but then I also of course um I have been quite impressed and quite uh, taken about the Sami Yoik, which isn't really music. It's sort of something else. Um, it's a way of expressing yourself, but also a way of uh, getting in contact. I mean, it was usually used for the shaman, the noid, as we say, uh, to sort of get in contact with a with, with an animal or with a person but it could also be someone who has been out on the mountain for several weeks working with the uh working with the reindeer and then suddenly get a very strong feeling for their uh, dearest and the yoik comes to you so it's usually for the elder people the yoik is something that you can't just start you have to have the connection um you have to have be in the right situation but for many young well for many people york has become part of music i mean you put york together with uh, hip-hop or with the traditional pop or rock or uh, whatever and it's uh it's a powerful thing because it really speaks to you through yeah it, it goes deep and usually these yorks don't have any words. They're just tunes. And the traditional ones, they don't really have a beginning or an ending. You can start wherever and you can stop wherever. And as a Swede, I am not supposed to yoik because it's very connected to the true Sami culture. But I have sort of... Um, I have been said that it's okay that I do one, a couple. And I have a couple that are sort of close to me so um, I usually have one or two yoiks and then I have a couple of folk songs on my shows and then I have one or two songs that I have sort of made myself also that's wonderful I I remember um, when I was in northern Finland and uh, a woman sang yoik songs and she described them to me as they're not really about something they are something they are the the embodiment of what it is you're singing about yeah I mean, that's the true, um, yeah, you need to have that connection that you, and it's not that you have made that yoik. You have been given, it has been given you, it has been sort of, uh, yeah, it has been getting to you <laughs> somehow, it comes to you. I I wanted to ask one last thing, really, which was, um, I suppose, 
does wild food um, it not just taste different to food that is grown in a garden, but does it feel different in some way? How would you describe the difference between food mm. that we have grown in a garden compared to food that is wild? Um, I, I think it's not just the enjoyment of having a good meal from wild plants. It's also the joy of having the, the, the feelings and the senses when you're out foraging them. I mean, you can't... Of course, if you have a garden, you can have a beautiful garden. It's wonderful to go out and pick, pick your own food. It is. But it's not the true element for it. So, uh, and for here in, in northern Sweden, it's a very short summer. It's a hard climate, but the sun is shining both night and day. So uh, the scientists know now that the, the, the vitamins and the minerals, but also the taste is higher in the north. Because uh, you need to be super plants to, to grow, but also you grow both night and day. You never rest. The plants sort of continue to grow, which makes them even more filled with, uh, with the aromatics and everything like that. So... You describe so wonderfully why wild food is important to you and why it should be more important to us as a as a human race as well. So thank you, Ava, for everything you've taught me during this short conversation. I look forward to learning more. Well, thank you for being a part of this. So my last thing, actually, we're recording this in May. It's, it's a season of great vitality, isn't it? Everything is growing. The sun is in the sky nearly all the time. Um, but in case somebody is listening to this in the winter and they decide to listen to our podcast in the winter, tell us what you will be eating in the winter in the dark nights. What have you preserved? Oh. What is your favorite thing that, to enjoy? Oh, I mean, in the darkest of winter when I really long for summer, I, I, uh, I think I take from my freezer some nettles and some sorrel and I make like a nettle sorrel soup but instead of broth from uh, vegetables or chicken I use the reindeer broth because that's the best of all uh, and maybe put a piece of boiled reindeer meat in it also uh, and then I love my uh, golden dandelion syrup which I make from the dandelion flowers and uh, that always cheers me up if I'm <laughs> cold, together with ice cream or just on some fruit or some salad. And, uh, and then I like to have a cup of, I mean, I have a lot of different herb teas, um, her herbal teas, you say. Uh, and sometimes I feel a lot of herbal teas, they, ta they taste usually like hay. That's, uh, I mean, dried herbs can can do that, but some if if you have the good blend, you really get the feeling of summer, and you need a cup of hot steaming, and of course the best thing of all, uh, you know the meadow sweet, that's also quite common here, and uh, uh, Ulmaria. Yes, Filipendula mm. Ulmaria. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, that has. Such a wonderful! I, I I usually make a cordial from the flowers, um, and then I boil it. In Sweden, we like to make glögg, 
during Christmas time, which is like a spiced wine. But here I'm, I I take my cordial from the Meadowsweet, which is golden and uh, delicious with a little bit of lemony flavors also. And then I spice it with some um, cinnamon, star anise, cardamom. And that combination is, wow, that is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's conjured a wonderful vision in the winter months. And like you, I've just finished making uh, dandelion jelly and mm -hmm. syrup. So it's the season for us for that. And, and next will be, yes, next will be meadow sweet soon. So I will think of you oh. when we make ours too. And thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. När grå jag blivit, då har jag givit alla mina levnadsdagar till dig. När grå jag blivit, då har jag givit alla mina levnadsdagar till dig. Thanks for listening to Beneath the Stream. Uh, we really appreciate uh, hearing from you, but most of all, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review. Leave those nice five-star reviews of Beneath the Stream at iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and uh, give us your feedback. Thanks so much for listening.